All right, now I'm recording. All right, can you guys see the the PowerPoint? So this week, um, because we're kind of making some, we're getting ready to transition to kind of do like our intro to Dust Toledo and everything, uh, we just kind of opened it up again this week to a topic or a passage that somebody wanted to look at. So the thing we suggested this past week was just discussions on obedience in general, um, because I think for a lot of us, we've had some... Uh, uh, we have some perspective um, of, of like what is required of us, what is it uh, that we're supposed to do. And so I just want to kind of take this week to kind of discuss at least my theology and what I've kind of come to when it comes to uh, being in charge, authority, obedience, and all of that conversation. Okay. Um, Blacksburg, I was getting a lot of feedback from your Mike, so I, I turned the volume off on this end. So if you need to, okay, yeah, that'll work. Tony, thank you for doing that. Um, if you guys have a question or something, just unmute it, uh, or when I pause for questions or conversation parts. Um, all right, so I'm terrible at titles, and obviously we all know it's Charles who is in charge here, but um, <laughs> so. So anyhow, today I just I was saying about like because I want to dismantle some of our perspectives of like a hierarchical understanding of, of chart who's in charge and and stuff like that when it comes to particularly the church or it comes to theology or faith um, because I think in a lot of ways we have a really unhealthy thing. I think initially it feels really great to know that there's one person in charge and they're gonna tell me exactly what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to live. And at first that kind of feels maybe like some relief because you can kind of you know, take off your, uh, you can just be like, I'm just gonna to listen and do whatever they say. And that's a little bit easier, kind of put your life on rails a little bit. Unfortunately, a lot of times those rails lead over a cliff. Um, and so hopefully what we can do is talk about how do we how do we have a healthier, more biblical perspective of who's in charge and authority? So, um, so the first question I have when I'm thinking about this is like, first of all, what is healthy obedience? And maybe even more uh, important is what is healthy disobedience? Bless you. Thank you. Um, so let me just kind of talk to healthy obedience first. Um, when you guys think about, and Tony, you can unmute you guys if you guys want to ask any input. Any input. Um, what do you imagine is healthy obedience, right? Because I think we all know with like that blind faith uh, thing that, like I was talking about, that can be dangerous, lead you off the edge of a cliff. But what does it look like to imagine being obedient to people that it's healthy? Any any bits or pieces with that? Okay. 
Awesome. Well, then I got my sermon cut out for me. You got well, I, I was going to say, um, I would think it would be considered in the realm of healthy if you were obedient to a set of rules where you knew the heart of the community and okay. um, the in and outs of what it was you were being obedient to. So, uh, if I could maybe word it back to you, like uh, obedience that is more about the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law? Yeah, that would be okay. a great summary of what I just said. Okay. Okay. I also feel that kind of combines it with uh, figuring out what is healthy um, questioning of the authority. Yes, and we'll definitely get into that because that's absolutely important. So if you didn't hear, Mike suggested that that, that plays into uh, you know, healthy questioning of authority. So Blacksburg, you guys have any thoughts about uh, healthy obedience? Um, yeah, I do. So I conceptualize this in terms of power somewhat. Um, so when I think of power is, uh, or the way I define power is having um, the ability to act in any particular way. Um, I just think that's a good definition of power in general. Um, and in this context, I think having the ability to obey or disobey is critical for it to be healthy to obey. Like you have no other option except to obey. That's, that's never going to be healthy because you don't have the power to disobey. Um, and additionally, like taking that even further, um, not only being able to disobey, but uh, not facing unreasonable consequences for disobeying. Um, actually feeling like you like it's a viable choice, not, even, not just a possible choice. Excellent. Did everyone get that here? Yeah. So I'm getting used to hearing it this way. So it's kind of like the breaking up of a uh, restaurant. If you work there long enough, you, you get to recognize the order. So basically, and CJ, I, I'm going to rephrase what you said just because you said it way more eloquently than I could possibly say. Um, but CJ was saying it is our, first of all, is. Uh, Obedience is only healthy if you have the ability to be disobedient or to not follow the order. Oh. And also, in addition to that, um, to not only be have the ability to be disobedient, or, but that also actually be a, a truly viable choice that has reasonable consequences as opposed to unreasonable consequences. Like you might. They might, someone might say, well, you, you can uh, disagree with me here. You cannot listen, but then get out of the house, mm -hmm. right? And some, a lot of times those two things aren't reasonable, right? It's not a, not a reasonable consequence for being disobedient to kick someone out for not doing the dishes, right? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Don't kick me out for not doing the dishes. Um, what if you kick him out for inviting a drug dealer over to the house to uh, do a drug transaction? Well, see, that's why it has to be a reasonable uh, <laughs> response. So um, if it's a pharmacist and they have a prescription, obviously the response <laughs> would be different. Um, so CJ, was that a fair 
uh, summation. I, you said it way better than I could. Uh, yeah, that was fair. I think this also ties into the idea of consent in general. Yes. Um, particularly with like sexual relationships. Okay, great. I, I certainly agree. So consent as well. Yep. Mary Elizabeth, hold on one second. Mary Elizabeth, did you have something also? No, I just like the way that CJ summarized it because that makes total sense to me and I'll, I don't know. I oh, like yeah. it. I, my, my teaching is way better now that CJ says that. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. So, all right, David, what were your thoughts? I was going to say that I was thinking about who the person is. It's an unspoken, but who is the person that we're obeying or disobeying? For the entity, yeah. Um, I mean, part of the question assumes that there's someone who's giving directions. Correct. Who is that person, and should we be obeying or disobeying them? Absolutely. And if you're asking me that to give you clarification, I'm not going to do that. No. But I think I think <laughs> good because. But I do think that is important. Also, like, who is the person that we're speaking about in this situation? Yep. So, in some situations, it might be. So when I'm just thinking about church or theology, it could be anywhere from the street preacher with to Sunday school teacher to pastor to priest to bishop to you know administration administrative folks within the denomination. Uh, so that's all about the obedient. Yes, I, I certainly agree with you. Or even God, God's self, right? Uh, that's another piece of it. CJ, kind of what you were touching on with the idea of having it actually be a viable option to disagree. That's where cults kind of uh, form, is in the place where you can't disagree. There's a final authority, there's a final answer, there's a final solution. Intentionally use that term because that's what ends up happening when we have a singular person with no checks and balances and their authority and they just say, listen to me because I said so. Um, and that's very dangerous. Well, I think you also see it in, in society, which obviously impacts the discussion on faith. It's uh, a huge population out there that will follow politicians, what they say, as fact. And, and, you know, the same with in this instance. Um, for many folks that take that as the question take that as gospel, take, take a, a, a leader's word with God as gospel, and you don't necessarily want to dig deeper or, or ask others to take that follow it. That is not necessarily obedience, but it is in some respect. Yeah. All right. So. So let's move on to what is healthy disobedience. And I really think CJ did a good job of talking about the right to be disobedient, uh, or at least it being a viable option. And we have to recognize one thing in, in, in that is, as CJ mentioned, there are 
consequences for being disobedient. Um, and disobedience is only a viable option if the consequences fit the disobedience, right? Like the, the punishment fits the crime type thing. Um, so can you think of healthy disobedience, whether it be examples or actually concepts of healthy disobedience? I, I think, I mean, just thinking of the civil fear of civil disobedience, mm -hmm. if there's a law that is unjust or, um, you know, that that to me seems like an obvious point of civil dis disobedience. I don't know, that may or may not be what we're talking about, but I think- No, that's perfectly a good example. Yeah. World War II. What's that? I said go to World War II. You didn't want to help follow Hitler. Right. So World War II, following Hitler to stand up, you know, like Bonhoeffer uh, kind of uh, stood up and fought against uh, the Nazi regime within the church, right? Um, so, okay. Any other uh, ideas of healthy disobedience? I feel like there can be times where as being, I guess, ordered okay. uh, to do a task, if you have a better perspective of the outcome, like if someone, I don't know, I'm thinking like in, in like a nonprofit world, like might be ordered to do this, but you know that person's situation, you know that would actually be unhealthy for that person. It's kind of hard to nope. sum that all up. Nope. Uh, Tennessee, you want to unmute? Uh, give me one second. Um, but uh, I think, so when I think about what you just said, Mike, it kind of reminds me of all of Torah, right? Torah is all these laws, 613, according to Maimonides. And, but the argument is every law in Torah, but one, you shall have no other God before you, is acceptable. It's acceptable to break it as long as the reason for it is to preserve life. Right, and so I think that touches with what you were saying, that uh, you know the whole uh, do not work on the Sabbath, right? But if that's the way that your family uh, pays its bills, well, then that's a completely okay reason to break Sabbath, right? Um, so that type of thing. So I think what you were saying kind of is a part of Torah understanding that I don't think a lot of Christians have or even realize exists, right? And this goes back to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law type thinking. So, all right, Mary Elizabeth, did you have something? Well, yeah, but I mean, it's just not anymore. You're good. You summed it up. You're good. <laughs> oh, no, I'm so sorry. All I was going to say is that um, when, obedient, when being obedient would go against some core value, then that would be a healthy disobedience. Yep, I agree. And I think that is a different nuance than what I just, I mean, I think it contributes to it. I think that, you know, whether you're in a business or a work environment or something that you're asked to do something that goes against uh, your character, the core of your beliefs or ideology, theology, whatever, that that would be also a healthy time to be disobedient. Abusive household. Abusive household is another thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. The question comes to my mind is when you say to preserve life, 
and I I don't understand the 613 laws. Oh, you will by Thursday. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because I want to. Um, I think, okay, so what, I mean, people talk about life, and you mentioned working, mm -hmm. but is, you know, is within the scope of the definition of life mm. the quality or comfort or is it yeah. just purely existing or living? So, so let's use Jesus uh, and Jesus's response to that, right? So on the Sabbath, a woman uh, has a hand that is shriveled or something. I don't remember exactly how the, the, the Bible describes it. And on the Sabbath, he says, you know, stretch out your hand. She stretches out her hand and it's healed. It's, mm -hmm. She's regained whatever uh, was lost to her. And of course, the people around were like, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and healing someone is working, right? And Jesus's response is, which of you, if your uh, you know, stiff-necked beast is, I love that he chose to pick a mule uh, right here in this setting. Because uh, they're obstinate. Because they're being obstinate. Which of you, if you have a mule that's stuck in a ditch, on Sabbath, won't stop and pull it out. Why? Because that's quality of life for the mule, right? Mm -hmm. And so you pull the mule out, and he's like, how much more would I not do this to release this person, right? So this is the same kind of picture is that uh, that quality of life or life is something that's debatable, right? It's something that, so part of one of the things that we did as a family, uh, we used to be a lot more particular about observing Sabbath than what we've been in the last few years. Um, but we would still always go to the farmer's market because the farmer's market were local uh, companies and local farmers and to preserve life or either even to further life in our community was to support those ventures. And Believe me, you can probably find a way to argue for just about anything to break the rule. Exactly. So, you know, I talked about it before, but to be a judge within Israel, you had to be able to argue 20 reasons, biblically sound reasons, why someone could eat a lizard, right? Because a lizard's considered unclean. So you had to be able to argue biblically 20 reasons or 20 loopholes for someone to be able to eat a lizard. And you also had to be able to argue 20 reasons biblically that they could not eat a lizard. And the whole point was that this system, this idea of Torah, is always to improve life and benefit others with uh, how you live and how you treat one another. And if it ever is something that's limiting to someone or it robs them from fullness of life, that you need to find a way around it. But you couldn't just dismiss it, which is our habit, right? As, as Christians, I think we do this. We just dismiss it. You had to theologically, biblically find an, a reason why you could do that. It's intellectual laziness. It's, well, intellectual and spiritual laziness. Yeah. yeah. All right. Any, any other thoughts from anybody? If Blackberry has some, we can un, you can unmute. Um, all right we're good all right so i want to look at in healthy obedience just a couple pieces and blacksburg is that writing too small for you guys no it's all right okay um i didn't think about it so i just saw it on my screen that it might be too small all right so the first one is honor your father and mother um 
And Garrett, we'd appreciate if you were honoring right now and shut up. <laughs> I, I, thought that was, I thought that was his verbal expression. Yeah, I thought he was agreeing. No, that was his face. Yeah. Oh. He's like, I am. Way him. to shut him down. <laughs> so, oftentimes in the church, honor your father and mother has been used to keep kids in line, right? Mm -hmm. If you use that, I want to apologize to you now because you're misusing it. <laughs> that is not what that means. Honor your father and mother has nothing to do with obedience. Uh, it has nothing to do with listening uh, when you're told to do something. That is not what honor your father and mother has. Think about the, this. I, there's a passage that explains it in a lot of ways. It says, so Jesus is in the marketplace. His disciples have not washed their hands, right? The Pharisees come up and say to him, uh, you know, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Because everything they eat now is unclean. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do not let the laws of man override the laws of God. Right? The laws of man was washing your hands. You can't find that in Torah. That was the law of man. And, but the law of God was this animal or this food is clean. And they were, their argument was by not washing your hands, you could actually make something unclean that God had declared to be clean. To further the example, Jesus says to them, he says, it's like honoring your father and mother. The Bible says, honor your father and mother, and you say, give Corbin to the church or to the, to the temple. And he's like, do not let man-made laws override human, or uh, do not let man-made laws override biblical laws. So giving Corbin was when you received an inheritance, you were able to give or encouraged to give a portion of the inheritance to the temple as this special offering called Corbin. Now, many people would do this and then say, because I gave Corbin, I can no longer afford to honor my mother and father. Because honoring your mother and father was taking care of them in the I, I dread saying this while my mother-in-law is in the room. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah. I was, was going to say, don't, don't explain it. Don't, don't explain it. <laughs> um, yes, Don, don't explain it. I did mention inheritance there first. Uh, so anyhow, the idea is with honor your father and mother was that when your, your parents were no longer able to take care of themselves, that you would take care of them. This is what it meant to honor your father and mother. So when they were no longer able to earn a living, uh, right? they didn't have social security, they didn't have 401ks, they didn't have anything like this in ancient days. And so what would happen is the moment you became no longer viable at, at creating income, a lot of cultures, particularly as far back when we think as far back as Torah, a lot of the cultures, the elderly would just fall off the back of the pack, almost literally, and just die. They'd be left behind. You can keep up with the group as long as you can keep up, but the moment you can't keep up anymore, um, well, then you've served your purpose to our community. We will bless you and off to the elephant graveyard you go. Right? So, you saw, you saw that more often than, than you could believe in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, it's it's startling, and it's also within culture it was it was prevalent, and so here is God saying that's not how Israel will work. 
Israel will, uh, when there's someone who can no longer viably earn for the community or participate in the community that way, that the community or the children particularly will, will take care of them. And that's what's called honoring your father and mother. So I just want to clear this up. Honor your father and mother is not about uh, following the rules. I will tell you though, don't be disappointed if you really like that idea of telling your children to be obedient. There's other places in the Bible you can find that. It's just <laughs> not there. Okay. All right. So another one, head of the household. Now this one has caused a huge amount of problems in the church, particularly for women. Uh, it has been a boon to our existence as men. It has been a bane to uh, women. So head of the household, you know, we see that Paul says, who is the head of the household? Uh, we see that Jesus says, uh, it says Jesus is the head of the church, the same as man is head of the household. Um, this is taken from a very early view within Judaism. So in Deuteronomy 1, you can find the passage that explains what the head of the house or the head does. Head was a role within Israel's idea of structure of faith and household and church. And so the head, their job was to make sure that everybody's voice was heard and that everybody's voice was treated with equity and that everybody had access to justice. That's what the head of the household is supposed to do. That's what Jesus, we imagine, it's kind of interesting. When we think of Jesus, we actually have somewhat of that picture of, of Jesus being the head, that he is making sure that our voices are heard, that we are being, uh, we are being taken care of, we are being cared for. Uh, head of the household, uh, particularly, again, when you think back to ancient times, women were often treated more times than not as second-class or no-class citizens. And God is like, that is not how Israel will operate. In fact, I'm going to say that culture makes the male important. Well, in Judaism, then the male will be paid as a head, which the head's job is to make certain that the voiceless is heard. You understand that? So, so in a culture where women's voices were not considered, God said, no, that's not how Israel will, will happen. In fact, we will make sure that we use the privilege and the power that, that the male has to make sure that the female or the spouse uh, is voices heard. Okay? That is a very different perspective than what we've often treated head of the household. Any questions about that from anyone? Um, I know we've kind of gone over this a couple of times at different points. Um, you guys have anything in Blacksburg? It looks like you have something in Blacksburg. Where you got going there? Um, basically, it references that the man is 
the head of a heterosexual relationship and the woman is the body of that relationship? Is that related to this or is that a separate idea? Well, it, it doesn't say that the woman's the body, it just says that the man's the head. I think we've added we've added the body to this because we can't imagine just a head wandering around. <laughs> but this is where I think it's important. This wasn't an anatomy lesson, this was a role lesson. It just so happened that we we have the uh, we have, we use the term head, which is why we probably actually probably why we call this a head is because it kind of is the thing that does most of the work. And I and I'm saying that comes from a bad understanding of what that role is in Judaism particularly. Um, All right, I'm pretty certain that it did say body in at least one of the translations here. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. I don't remember. It was in Exodus. 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 No, it was in. I think it was later. I think it was really. Was it? Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the problems that I have with this idea or understanding of like this change or alteration in a cultural perspective is that it just like to me it doesn't go far enough. Like if we really, if God really is saying that men and women should be equal in this you know, in, in, in Israel, in this culture, then, like, why is it that men are the ones who have the sign of circumcision? Like, why, why is that? There's nothing for women. Why is it? Actually, there is. Women already have circumcision built in by having a vagina. Okay. So it's already, so it actually, in some ways, I would argue that you could actually use circumcision as uh, catching up to what women already provided. It was a blood, uh, a blood path, uh, the menstrual cycle, and passing through uh, an opening. That's exactly what circumcision is. It's a ring around the penis. It's a blood path that then the sperm has to pass through in order to uh, create uh, a being. And so there is this sense. That's why for Israel, it's always been that if the mother's Jewish, the baby's Jewish. It's never that if the father's Jewish, the child's Jewish. It's only if the mother's Jewish is the child Jewish. Okay. So I would actually argue, so I think your question is great. What we miss is that Paul is talking almost exclusively to Gentiles who are therefore outside of Jewish culture. And he is having to use terms. It's kind of like when Paul uses terms such as flesh versus spirit. Those are very uh, Greek philosophy terms that didn't exist in Judaism. But Paul, as it says, I will become all things to all people, meaning he will use the language, the analogies, and everything in order to approach or adjust. So I think Paul talking to Gentiles is saying, you live in a culture, you were raised in a culture where the male is the dominant person in the household. I'm telling you that the male is a head to the household, not the dominant being in the household. And so he's actually disrupting power structures when he teaches them. All you have to do is look at Judaism to see that when Paul writes to Jewish leaders in the church, a bunch of them are women. Uh, when we find uh, archaeological findings and drawings in the churches, many of the many of the drawings are of women with their hands in. Uh, in a form that means teaching or teacher. And also in those paintings, the height of the drawing determined how much, how powerful they were, like the hierarchy. And there are so many drawings where the woman is the exact same height as Paul. 
um, and we have Deborah, and we have uh, Miriam, and we have all these people uh, throughout the Bible that are Jewish. Ruth, uh, well, we can talk about Ruth a little bit, but you know, all these women within the Bible who are within Jewish culture who, I don't know if I'd say easily rose up the ranks, but were, it was never questioned whether or not they should be in authority. It wasn't until the Greek, uh, the Gentiles started coming in that they became a ton of questions about this. And that's why Paul has to correct a lot of the teachings that are going on in Ephesus and, uh, and in Thessalonica and Colossae and all these places because they're bringing with them their culture. And Paul's having to help them reimagine what this is. Does that, that make sense now? Yeah, a little bit more. Okay. We can talk about more too. I don't want to dismiss it because yeah, yeah. we're going to talk about this more. So maybe we can actually dive into those passages. And CJ, if you can find that passage you're referencing, um, we can talk about that tomorrow night. Okay. All right. Can you mute you guys? For some reason, your mic is picking up a ton of stuff. All right. All right, so the last one, pastor, teacher's authority, okay? So this is another place that I think we've often had some dangers in the church is that the pastor is the final authority on things. Whether the congregation sees it that way or not, oftentimes the pastor sees it that way um, and expects a certain level of obedience. And I think this kind of gets to a little bit to what Mary Elizabeth's original question was, uh, like, the whole, uh, you know, just be obedient. Just listen to what I, I'm telling you what, how you're supposed to live. Just listen. Um, first and foremost, at dusk, if I ever say that to you, call, call bullshit on that, right? <laughs> call it. Just don't. That is not, that is not healthy. That is not uh, viable. Uh, second of all, to use an example, uh, Paul celebrates, well, in the book of Acts, uh, the Bereans are celebrated because when they heard Paul teach, they questioned everything. They went back and looked through the scriptures to make sure what, what Paul was saying was sound. Right? And so if Paul was second-guessed and Paul was, they were, and these people are being celebrated for that, that, again, I think is why I think we can look at Paul as a healthy educator within the church, that this was being celebrated. So I love the fact that when we talk and have conversations, that there's many times that you guys might either later or on the spot push back on one of my ideas. We need to do that. That doesn't mean I won't defend my idea, but we need to do that. We need to be willing to accept pushback. We need to be willing to accept feedback. Um, and you at any time so like for instance the passage that cj brought up i'm not i can't think of the passage that she's referencing but when she shows it to me i'm gonna have to be like okay we need to deal with this now and i might need to shift my view on this right so that's those things are super important and i think we've made pastors answer people and we assume that if they're the answer people that they're also right um and i would encourage you never to assume i'm right Okay, you can go with plausible. You I think bought that for you. <laughs> you. You can think what I say is plausible, but don't think that I'm right. Okay, uh, until you anchor it, um, I think that that's really significant, and I think that's actually the only healthy way for a church to exist well.
All right. Any questions or thoughts about this? Uh, this one. All right, good. You guys aren't going to question my my teaching on that. That's excellent. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. So real quick, what is biblical authority? So biblical authority is something that's very. Give me a cup too, please, Mary Elizabeth. Um, uh, biblical authority is really important because we hear the word authority, and we miss that what authority was in biblical times is different than what we call authority today. Biblical authority. If someone had authority. So say I lived in the time of Jesus, and they said, uh, Don, Ben, Don, Don, Ben, Don, has authority. What they would have been saying is not that I have a right to tell people what to do, but that I have a good enough grasp of scripture that I am allowed to make interpretations that don't need to cite other people before me. And you have to have been granted this authority from two other people who have authority, right? And so there had to be this picture. It's why when uh, they're confused, right, they say, who's this guy who teaches with authority, referring to Jesus? And they're going to question him. And they know that if they question him, they're either going to have to deal with where did John the Baptist get his authority, because it's John the Baptist that anoints Jesus with authority, and God, when God tears open the heavens, it says, this is my son, do what he says, right? Um, they know that they're either going to have to question where John the Baptist got his authority and therefore bring into question a second person that everyone loved, or they were going to have to just let it go. And so Jesus knows this and says to them, where did John the Baptist get his authority? And they're left to not be able to answer. Um, but authority is that somebody has the ability. So... This is something I think is really important. And I know I can be really sloppy with it at times, and I want to apologize for that. But as teachers or as people talking about the text and talking about the Bible, we should be as best we can always citing our source so it never confuses the person listening that we are the originator of that idea. Um, that is really important. Um, and if you have what you perceive to be an original idea, like I thought I did about Jonah two weeks ago. Um, and then I was given a book, uh, Justify uh, Something Jonah. I don't remember the title. I keep wanting to say Justify Jonah, but that was my, my title. Um, I have to now say, okay, this person is the person, and I need to be referencing that person, right? Uh, we just, that's healthy. And that also kind of keeps us from being the answer person. Um, and so that's important. Any questions about biblical authority? All right, so one of the things that uh, really kind of freaks people out sometimes when they find out that myself and my family are like follow the dietary laws and that we do our best to observe Sabbath and that we follow other laws within Torah is Aren't, isn't that legalistic, right? I get that all the time. People immediately are, are like, well, isn't that being legalistic? And the short answer to that is no. Right? So let, let me give you an example. Um, and I don't know that it, it works quite as well now as what it maybe did a decade ago, um, because I don't think people necessarily feel this as confident about this as we used to. But 
it used to be said all the time that America is the freest country in the world, right? And so the irony is. Hey, John. Um, can you just quickly define legalism? Sure. So legalism would be following the letter of the law type thing, where like uh, you can't uh, like you're doing everything just for the sake of doing it to to follow the rules and there's no wiggle room and it's very black and white typically uh, and that's a fair question to ask me what the definition of legalism is it, for me it's kind of one of those first steps of the geometry problem it's just a given like i've heard it so much in a certain context that for me i i kind of feel what it is so i think what i where uh, the way i've heard it used in the church is to indicate that all you're concerned about is following the rules and there's no other like there's no heart to it there's no spirit to it yeah okay is that is that good cj all right um so uh so so anyhow the united states uh, most people either still say or at one point have said the u.s is the freest country in the world the united states also has more laws on the book than any other country in the world and so my argument would be, if in the United States, as flawed as we are, right? Uh, I don't think we have to look much past our political seasons to see that we're flawed, right? As flawed as we are, um, we still experience laws that are written with uh, community in mind as being freeing, right? Um, and I get that we could debate that and debate certain laws and everything. And I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to give an overview. And so the argument I would make is if laws within a country or a nation or a legal system could give the appearance or the feeling of freedom or the true reality of freedom, then how much more would the laws of God make you feel free and it actually be freeing and not binding? right? Not make you feel bound. So to follow the 613 laws, again, Maimonides number, uh, should, if you're doing it well, you shouldn't look legalistic to people. You shouldn't be uh, a robot that's just doing, following its program. Uh, but instead, you should be the epitome of freedom. Does that make sense? So let me give you an example. Jesus. It says he followed every law of Torah. He never once broke any law in Torah. John so much thinks that, that John calls him the Torah made flesh, right? And so here is Torah in flesh, and we are still talking about the life that this guy lived 2,000 years later. So in his instance, the way that he lived out all of Torah, he expressed all of Torah, was so compelling that I've never heard a single Christian call Jesus legalistic. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that they could do it better. Um, and so we have, we have for us a picture of if we understand God's law in a healthy way, in a way that gives life, and if we participate within it in a way that gives our neighbor life and therefore freedom, then we won't, we won't have this problem for legal. Any questions about that? All right. All right, so 
Diana, or was it you that brought questions? Um, I have another uh, request to just um, quickly define what you mean in this context with the word freedom. Yeah, so my definition of freedom is often my own, using my freedom, giving up some of my freedom in order that somebody else might have more freedom. And I realize using the word freedom in its definition is kind of a, uh, a lumpy, uh, unsatisfying thing. Um, but freedom, I think, is is creating space, whether that be uh, in my way I think about God creates space for us to experience freedom, or in the microcosm, us being in the image of God, us creating space for freedom around us as well, is the ability for someone to express truly who they are. Um, and do it in a way, hopefully, that remains healthy for everyone around them. I, I think it's complicated because I think the word freedom is kind of a fallacy in a lot of ways because I might have the freedom of speech, but David has the freedom of silence, and he has to hear me speak even when he wants to have silence. And so somebody is always giving up some of their freedom so somebody else can exert theirs. Um, I would argue what the Bible calls us to is to willingly find new and more ways to give up some of our freedoms in order to create even more opportunities for others to express their freedom. And only in healthy ways. This doesn't mean to remain in abusive situations or to be, you know, uh, so again, the caveat is always going to be with life or fullness of life and health. Is that helpful? Um, and stop asking me for definitions, CJ. Just stop it. <laughs> you want to add anything or ask any more questions? I'm only kidding. Please ask me for definitions. But um. go for it. Um, I don't have any more questions about it. I disagree with your definition somewhat. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily required to give up. Um, I'm going to use the word power because I think of this in terms of power. So I don't think it's, it's necessary to give up power in order to empower somebody else. Um, I think it's possible to grow power um, out of nothing, basically, and just have more power for everybody, like allow everybody to um, express more of themselves fully. So um, we get an example, like um, between uh, you have the freedom of speech and the freedom of silence. Um, but in recognizing uh, the, or in providing the power to do both of those things to everybody, um, you're increasing, you're increasing like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to use that example very well, but um, basically, I think that amount of, of power that somebody has doesn't necessarily decrease if they're in a, already in a powerful position. Um, if you're trying to raise up somebody else, I think uh, I think it benefits everybody, uh, including the person um, who would be perceived to be giving up power uh, to. I don't disagree with that. Empower somebody. Um, for example, oh, I've got a better example. Um, so, uh, crime that's driven by poverty. Um, so if we eliminate poverty, we 
with only a lot of crime. Um, so the people who are not in poverty still suffer from this crime, um, but they would have to give up some of their wealth to fix this problem. Um, but they would also benefit from the, the lack of, or the reduced crime rate, for example. Right, so the way I would make my definition fit into that would say uh, that the affluent folks that are speaking about would give up some of their freedom of, of keeping all of their wealth because they have a right and a freedom to do that. And they would give up some of that freedom in order to give some of that affluence or some of that wealth in order to help the impoverished community who is not experiencing as much freedom to experience more freedom as that wealth became more accessible. So does that, I, I think you, you're going to be perfectly spot on for pushing on my uh, nuance on that, but um, as everything that's oversimplified, I think. So do you, do you disagree with my fitting those together? Just the idea of, just the idea of giving up freedom, I don't think that's, uh, uh, something that needs to be centered um, in this conceptualization. I think that uh, we should instead look to um, ways to grow the, grow the overall freedom, not necessarily just okay. so much like, attention to what we're giving up. Okay. I almost look at freedom as a willingness to suspend my own ability to do what I want to do for the benefit of someone else. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, my that's that's similar to what I'm saying as well. I mean, my definition is just lazy, like I said, because of using the word freedom within the definition of freedom. Um, but I do think that there is something uh, about uh, taking the freedoms that I maybe experience or enjoy that others don't. And maybe CJ, this is where you would call that power, um, and and being willing to set aside some of my power or use that power in order to uh, help others gain power. Um, I I don't know I don't I, I don't know that um, I I don't know that we can necessarily hash this out further at this second. This will be a good reason to come to Bible study tomorrow night. Um, <laughs> So tomorrow night at 6.30, we will be talking about power as one of the things, but also just authority and looking at and freedom. Is that okay, CJ? All right. Um, so I think what's important here as we think about this is where do questions and answers fall into these understandings? Um, I think anytime we use fear to stop to force people to stop asking questions, we create a really unhealthy setting. Um, and oftentimes, uh, when we're talking about church or theology, that's what has been used to stop people from questioning is fear. Uh, you know, whether it be eternal torture and damnation as a threat to don't question this. Just you want to you want to take that risk. Right? I mean, I've heard that. Um, uh, and that, or that we will uh, say, um, you know, dancing leads to sex or 
poker leads to dancing, which leads to sex. I, you know, we have these slippery slope uh, things. Though I think that maybe uh, on the surface or lightly, some of those things can be, you know, graphed out in some way. Uh, we speak about it as certainty. And, uh, and I think that that's a really unhealthy place for us. And so I think that what we need to do is we need questions and answers to, we need to have more questions than we have answers. Right? One of the other really important things to me personally is, is that questions tend to be the great neutralizers of answer people, right? So in most of our educational settings, whoever knows the answer has the power, right? So in a classroom, if the teacher asks questions, whoever is able to get their hand up first and answer the question is the star student, right? And they're the ones with the power. Now, in a setting like a church where you have a mixture or a blend, and even in the school setting, where you have a mixture or blend of people with different education of whether it be the Bible or theological things or just education in general, formal education in general. Um, if we are just looking for the people that know the right answers, it becomes Mad Lips for Jesus, right? Like, give me a noun. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's, it becomes very oversimplified and really in a lot of ways unhealthy. Many of us have experienced with children or being around children that kids ask great questions that often stump adults um, and usually lead to answers such as, because I said so. Um, because we don't necessarily have a very solid answer for the question being asked. And so our go-to that we've all been taught very well is, because I'm your mom, because I'm your father, and I said so. Right? I'm a parent, and therefore, you do what I say. Um, Questions are the great neutralizers. So we, I would imagine, I actually have found that in settings that uh, we have a mixed education in it, that the people with uh, less formal education tend to ask the better questions. And oftentimes that's the case because people that have uh, a lot of formal education, it's been built into them to be the answer people. And so oftentimes they'll ask a question that they perceive they know the answer to. And that keeps them in power and in control in a lot of ways. And so we need to make sure that one, we're not asking, we're not answering questions that people aren't asking, which is something else that we like to do. And that we're not asking questions that we already perceive we know the answer to. Right? Because really what you're doing then is you're kind of manipulating the conversation. You're manipulating the setting uh, because you're leading someone to a conclusion that you've already come to. And that's unhelpful. Now, it's a little bit different if you ask someone for their opinion on something. You say, hey, Bree, can I get your thoughts on this? I have some ideas about this already, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. That's a completely different context than uh, asking a question that knowing the answer to gives you in some way power. All right. Any thoughts about this? I've forgotten what these understandings mean. Or what we're referencing. Just the overall authority and uh, obedience. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. So what do questions and answers have to do with authority and obedience? And so, you know, oftentimes we use question or we use answer people to hold on to power. Right. Uh, Jesus, I think, asks uh, 
like 270 questions and answers three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then as pastors and church leaders and Christians, we tend to answer in the exact opposite ratio. Um, and if we are to indeed emulate Messiah, then we should be much quicker to ask the next better question as Jesus often did. Um, and then, and honestly, the couple questions that you could say that Jesus answered were parables that he didn't tell them what the parable meant. <laughs> he just said, well, let me tell you a parable. Someone asked, who is my neighbor? And he said, well, let me tell you this parable about a Samaritan. And then at the end, he just leaves it there and says, you know, who is your neighbor? Which led to many more questions. Yeah, so, so, um, so that's why I think questions are so much more important than answers. Um, answers make us feel like we have solid footing and make us feel like we, uh, we know where we stand. Um, whereas questions, I would argue, are more like uh, footprints, right? So you either have a monument of where you already have been or you have footprints to show where you have been. Does that make sense? Uh, there's actually someone much more famous and eloquent that has a quote about that. I'll look it up for you and let you guys know. Uh -huh. And I think that that's important. I think too often we build monuments. Um... Sorry, I was getting a phone call. Maybe they have a question for you. They answered. Yeah, I didn't answer their call. <laughs> I'm just going with my teaching. All right, any other questions or thoughts about this? Yes. I'm trying to work through the whole because I said so thing as yeah. a parent, you know, yeah. from the parent perspective. I'm trying to think, I mean, I say that as a parent, not as often as I used to, because, you know, Hudson's 15, but. Um, I'm trying to think if there ever really is a valid because I said so. Um, and, and, and not so much, you know, just from my perspective, but I'm thinking, okay, so taking that into biblical perspective, is there ever a valid because I said so? As I start thinking about it more, I think, no, there isn't. It's usually a because I don't feel like explaining it to you, so you have to do it, or... Um, because I don't want to hear your argument about it or you're going to do what I say I want you to do it. You know, and, and obviously as a parent that, you know, most of the time you're doing that just as what's in the best interest of your child. But, um, yeah, so I'm just wondering, is there ever a, a biblical because I said so? Um, I think that there's proclamations that are made that you could maybe associate with that, where God sends uh, a prophet, and after makes it after the prophet makes a declaration, um, often will end with "I am the Lord your God," which sounds a lot like because I said so. Um, and so I think that you could you could maybe attach that, but again, I think that there's always room to be questioned. And I, so I think yeah. where the, because I said so kind of is a conversation ender yeah. and it's like, yeah. let's not talk about, um, I think about because I said so in moments of danger, right? Right. Like, so Malcolm is running towards the road and I'm like, don't go out there because I see a car coming that he doesn't see. Mm -hmm. And he wants to have a debate with me about it. Mm -hmm. The because I said so that might come out of that right there and then mm -hmm. 
is uh, preservation of life. So again, I think we could argue that everything has the exception if it's preservation of life. I just think that more so it has to do with preservation of our convenience, uh, and which is going to be very difficult. So I, I think it's a great question, and I don't know if anyone has an example that they can think of in the Bible. I, first thing that came to my mind is, I am the Lord your God. Um, and and now we're done having a conversation about this. But I, but when you actually read the totality of Scripture, I don't actually see God behave the because I said so. Yeah. Right. Well, and even if he, even if he said, yeah, even if he says because I said so, it's there is always that reasoning behind it. He's not fully right. Right. Yep. <laughs> All right. So Blacksburg, I think you guys had a question or a thought. Um. Yeah, well, I have a little comment on that also. Um, so let's start with that. So I think um, everything that God says, there's always room for debate or pushback or um, disagreements. Abraham's a great example that he likes to bring up a lot. Um, so I think that there's not a lot of absolutes. And once you get into absolutes, even with God, um, you start assuming things like uh, omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and all those omnis. Um, that gets really hairy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't have any other, anything else to say about that. Um, I just want to comment on this um, this question that's up right now. So, um, it it reminds me of kind of the historical um, gatekeepers to biblical information. It's been like a very homogeneous kind of population that's historically. Um, had the ability to research scripture and develop um, exegesis about it and at knowledge. And... Sorry? I said at least in the last 1,500 years. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times that, uh, that homogeneity has been sustained by preventing questions from being asked. Um, and we see the rise of things like um, black theology, liberation theology, feminist theology, um, all of these things that have qualifiers in front of them. Um, and they're, they're kind of undermining the, or they're, they're kind of questioning what the, the default sort of is. Like, is this, this default supposed to be, um, like, is it correct? The very existence of these alternatives yeah. Um, yeah. kind of questions the the validity of the the primary one. Right. I think I think you uh, you got this book conversation that happened on my page when I referenced the normative theology as white theology, and because if black theology is a thing and feminist theology is a thing and queer theology is a thing then so is white theology. And when I called it white theology, I had a whole bunch of white people brains pop and thought that I was making it racial as opposed to no. There is a theological interpretation that arises out of being Anglo and out of being white. And we that has become such the dominant theology that we've dropped any descriptor of it beforehand and just call that theology and make that base level and anything that diverges from that which i don't think it diverges from that but that's how our mind works 
anything that diverges from that needs a qualifier before it. It needs to be called feminist theology, womanist theology, uh, black uh, theology, liberation theology, the list goes on and on. And when in reality, whenever we just use the term theology, we have to recognize there is the word white or Caucasian or Anglo before that, but it's just silent. We don't pronounce that one, right? Um, and I would think it would actually be healthy if we actually started calling it white theology, um, because it would be a reminder to us that it's not, we don't have a corner on the market, that that isn't, uh, the, that isn't the best theology that's out there. That is a theology that's out there. Um, that, is that fair, CJ? Awesome. Yes, that Facebook feed, if you have time and want to waste an hour of your life, you should go read it. It was exhausting, and I think I just stopped at some point um, because no one was hearing that piece that we're talking about right now. They were just hearing it that I was calling them racist, uh, and there was just no way to kind of clarify it. I, I wasn't smart enough to. All right, so any other thoughts about this? All right. So a little advertising here. Um, so how is discipleship at dust helpful with this conversation? All right. So I apologize for doing some advertising. I really actually am not apologizing. Um, to me, discipleship is the most important thing that the church can do. Um, because discipleship is helping people to narrow the gap between their belief and their behavior. Okay. Um, I think that that is so unbelievably uh, important. Um, so if you imagine, I don't think I, uh, nope, let's see here. I'm going to switch the, the screen share to this. All right. So imagine you have this graph, which this is really hard to draw with, holy mackerel. All right, so you have a graph. This is the X and Y axis, dear Lord. Um, and then this is, imagine that is the top line for what we believe, okay? So this is uh, what we believe up here. Um, and then down here, if you could imagine, whoops. Yep, lines. Oh my gosh, what is going on here? All right, I'll tell you what, let's do it this way. I think this will be easy. All right, I'm, I apologize. This was way smoother in my mind. All right. All right, so let me try this. So we have. That is the, uh, that's the lines, and then we have, this is what we believe. Let's do it this way. All right, technology is wonderful, except when I'm using it. All right, so, so there is our belief, right? And then we, so I would argue that most of us experience life like this. So we believe, and I realized someone told me that this should not be a graph with a line. It should be a bar graph, and I'm too lazy to draw a bar graph. Okay. All right, so this here, 
So this graph here is to represent uh, the bottom line that's kind of this jagged line is how we behave. So if the way we believe is at the top, the way that we actually behave or live our life tends to not always come close and maybe every now and then we'll bump against what we believe. I would argue that discipleship is, uh, is filling this gap and bringing our behave and our believe into alignment. I think for most people, the reason that it's so hard for our believe and our behave to align is because the way we've been taught the Bible and the way that we've been taught our beliefs is because I said so. Mm -hmm. right take care of the poor why because i said so or because the bible says so or because of x y and z and most of us don't actually have healthy understandings of our why do we believe what we believe like in fact too many times i've sat across from people who have been christians either all their life or for a very long time and i've asked them very basic questions about why they believe what they believe and it shatters their beliefs because they actually don't have any real answers to it. It's just, well, that's what I've always been taught. That's what always has always been said to me. That's what I've always understood. And so for me, um, I think it's so significant that we as the faithful can actually articulate why we believe what we believe. I think it'll help us ask better questions I think it'll help us be better neighbors. I think it'll help us demonstrate more godliness to the people around us. And so um, I just want to invite any of you that are not a part of the discipleship process that would be interested in going through the discipleship process um, into that because um, we are going to work on helping through asking questions, through engaging uh, ideas, uh, help you to answer some of the whys, right? Um, Many of you guys have heard me say this in the past, 90% of Christians, I would argue, cannot give a biblical explanation that exists prior to Jesus about why Jesus had to die on the cross. They can reference Paul, but they can't reference any biblical foundation for Messiah and a cross using only things before Jesus. And the couple of examples they come up with such as forgiving of sins or the operatory systems, can be uh, dismantled in about three questions. And that's really a, a sad state of affairs when we can't even answer why we believe Jesus had to die on the cross. Um, and so I think it's important for us, if even our base understanding of faith and the cross and salvation in that way, if we can't even articulate that, then I really, really would encourage you to join discipleship so we can kind of work through those things. I think you're going to find if you do the discipleship process and that it's going to be life-giving and it's going to be feel healthy and you're going to feel more free um, as you go through it. So any questions or thoughts about discipleship? And I realized that was a very small, that was like a teaser trailer, uh, if you will. Um, Anybody have anything? All right. 
Um, that's all I have for today, unless you guys have any other questions in general. There's a picture of that group. What's that? No, I, I can see them better today for some reason. Yeah, it, did you guys get a different camera? No, we got the same one. It, you're, it, it seems uh, wider or closer now. That was my nephew. He was agreeing that it was good to see you guys. Cool. Um, does anybody have any questions or anything? So what's tomorrow's conversation going to be? Uh, I'm going to, uh, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to see if I can find a couple specific passages uh, in obedience. And CJ, if you uh, want to uh, bring up that passage, um, you can text it to me too, so um, I have a chance to take a look at it. But um, I'm open to tomorrow night being a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing with that, but I'm going to see if I can find a couple passages for us to specifically look at too. Oh, you got to say it again, CJ. Go ahead, say it again. Um, I know I had that passage bookmarked in that white Bible that was here. Oh. <laughs> yeah. This one? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll look for it, though. Okay. Uh, there's bookmarks in it still, although David's pulling them all out right now. I don't know what it's 1822. No, that's not the one. All right. Uh, we will talk about those passages tomorrow night then, okay? Um, I'm going to stop the recording.